let's go ahead and get started. So uh, for anybody who may end up listening to this later, this is our first session, giving it a go at, at the, uh, it's the Grandpa's Merc podcast. Hey, how about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how about that? So we'll see how it goes. Uh, you know, we are still kind of in the early stages of figuring out the audio, um, but uh, hopefully we can, uh, you know, our first one can be a success. Okay. <laughs> so uh, we, we wanted this first session to sort of revolve around Grandpa's childhood and, and growing up and his parents and grandparents and heritage. So I had Grandpa jot down some uh, some notes and thoughts, and uh, you want to go ahead and share those with us? Yeah, I can share some, and then, uh, you know, feel free to break in and ask further questions, because I'm, I'm going to skip from one thing to another a lot. At any rate, um, I was born in Newport, Kentucky, right across the river from Cincinnati. Really? Oh, I, I thought I yes. if I would have guessed you were born in Ohio. I had no idea. Well, no, I, I was pretty much raised in Ohio, but born in Kentucky. Uh, only spent about uh, about five or six years there. We moved to Cincinnati uh, in 1942, which was about roughly five years after I was born. Um and we lived in Cincinnati in a place real close to downtown, actually. We were about a, one to one and a half miles from downtown. We could actually walk downtown, although we didn't usually do that. I lived uh, about six or eight blocks from the University of Cincinnati campus, uh, just east of Vine Street. Vine Street being a, a main drag north and south through Cincinnati. Um, for those who are not familiar with it, Cincinnati, of course, is a very hilly place. It was known as the city built on seven hills. And in fact, there were different sections of the of the city named after different hills. And during the time that we moved there, World War II was in full swing. I remember uh, a lot of things about the war that, even though I was pretty young, they influenced me a lot in my thinking and uh, in the way I, I addressed people and treated people and so forth. Wow. So about about how old were you when the war started? Well, the war started in 1941. I was only four years old then. Okay. But and I was about five when we moved over to Cincinnati. So it was just uh, just getting going in, in 42. And I remember early on in 42, 43, all the way through the wartime in 45, uh, I remember rationing of things that uh, people aren't familiar with nowadays. But we actually had, the government actually rationed meat and sugar and coffee and Lots of other uh, products that uh, that were needed more for our troops in Europe and in in the Pacific. Is that the origin of the term uh, government cheese? Uh, could be. <laughs> I never heard that, but <laughs> at any rate, it's yeah. I mean, I, I was very familiar with rationing. I remember uh, as a youngster taking ration coupons and stamps up to uh, the grocery store for my for my dad and. Uh, to pick up various kinds of things. There, there were some things, like I say, that were severely rationed. Sugar, you could you could only get a very small amount each month. And wow. meat, was, uh, meat was rationed a lot. I don't remember the exact portions because my mother at that time had been, uh, well, so, sometime at 43 or 44, she went into a, a TB hospital, TB sanitarium, to be cared for. And because of that, the government gave my dad a little, some extra rationing stamps for meat. 
not sure why, because, you know, my mom was in the hospital. Yeah, you had, you had fewer people eating than usual. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but we, we, managed to, we managed to get enough meat and everything to satisfy ourselves. And I never drank coffee. My dad did, but, uh, but it was severely rationed. Uh, and other things like chocolate, for example, was rationed. So you, you bought those foods from the government, or were they rationed through grocery stores? No, no. They, we bought them from the, from the regular grocery stores, but the government, every month, would issue ration stamps to every family. Now, that was a pretty complicated process, but I, and I don't know exactly what method they used for distributing them, but, um, but it was based on the number of people in your family, and uh, they, they, ration, they allowed you so much meat and so much sugar and so much coffee and butter and various other things each month, and that was your limit. I mean, <laughs> and you, had, you took these ration stamps to the, to the grocery store and turned them in, and that was what your allotment was. As soon as you ran out of ration stamps, you couldn't buy any more sugar or coffee or, or meat or whatever. Um, how long was your how long was your mother uh, committed in the hospital? Well, she uh, she spent ten years in a TB hospital oh, wow. after she went in. I think I'm not exactly sure of the date that she entered the hospital uh, because right when she contracted tuberculosis, my sister and I had to leave the house because of the because it was very contagious. And so we moved back over to Kentucky for about a year and lived with an aunt of mine, my mother's sister. Um, so we, and I went to first grade over in Kentucky. My sister went to second grade. She was a year ahead of me in school. And um, so, we, yeah, we had to spend the whole year away from our home in Cincinnati until my mom could get uh, into a hospital. They, they, they had limited spaces for people like that. But she did go in, like I say, some, I think it was around maybe late 43 or so. Um, so you were like, very young still, about four or five years old? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was quite young. Yep. Yeah, in fact, I'm trying to look at my, my timeline here. <laughs> I try to make up a timeline to, to help me remember dates a little bit. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I think mom actually went into the hospital in 44, yeah, 1944. Um, but in 43, my sister and I had to move over across, back over to Kentucky and live with my aunt for about a year until she could get uh, into the hospital. So we moved back around 1944. <clears throat> and so I really didn't see my mother for about 10 years. Uh, wow. I saw her because it was so contagious, my dad was very, very uh, faithful in visiting her every week uh, in the hospital, but my sister and I were not allowed to go in. <laughs> we, the only time was, I think in 1950 or so, or 1950 or 51, when my dad first bought an automobile. He didn't own one until then. He used to take streetcars out to, uh, to visit his, his wife uh, every Sunday. And, but when he got a car, he started driving the two of us out there to the hospital. We couldn't go inside, but we could stand on the, uh, the grass outside the window. She was up on the fourth floor, <laughs> and we could wave to her. <laughs> and that was about it. 
so so from from maybe about five to 15 years old you you really never saw your mother but through a window that's correct i saw her through a fourth story window that's wow. that's it really didn't talk to her and um, you know, I mean, she she would shout out the window a little bit, but, you know, it was very limited conversations. Um, but my dad was allowed in to see her. I, I'm not sure exactly why they allowed adults in, even though it was contagious. But uh, but because he was her husband, I guess that was the reason. But um, so, yeah, things were kind of tough during those times. My dad took over raising uh, my sister and I. Uh, he had some help. He he did call on a sister of his, another aunt of mine, to come live, live with us for a while after my mom went into the hospital. And uh, so my Aunt Frances uh, kind of helped take care of us while Dad was at work. Um, and during those war years especially, uh, Dad was working <clears throat> about 10 or 12 hours a day uh, out at Cincinnati Millicron. Uh, they were cranking out all kinds of machinery and equipment for the war effort, uh, along with probably every other manufacturing uh, outfit in the, in the whole United States. They were cranking out everything for the war effort. And, and what did your father do for a living? Well, he was a ma machinist. Uh, actually, <laughs> when we first moved to Cincinnati, uh, he was a bartender. Oh, really? <laughs> yep, yep, he was. Uh, and I remember him tending bar for couple of years until he got got this job at Cincinnati Millicron as a lathe hand, a machinist. And um, he was real good with his hands. Never had much education, though. By the way, he, when his when his father died, which is my grandfather's Merck, uh, my dad was only in sixth grade. So he never went, he was about 12 years old. So he never went beyond sixth grade in any education. But, uh, but he was a very intelligent man and very good with his hands. And uh, like I say, worked uh, uh, at a lathe, a mach you know, machining parts and so forth for, for the war effort. And uh, so, I, you know, it made a big impression on me, that whole, uh, the whole war effort, because my, you know, a lot of friends that I knew were, uh, had, had gone over to serve in, in the Army and the Air Force and whatever. Older friends, of course, not... <laughs> Not uh, not close buddies or anything, but friends of my dad, and um, so I got very familiar with what was going on over there. And, and I had an uncle, one of my dad's brothers, uh, spent uh, about five years over in Europe, serving during the war. He was in the the Army Air Force or uh, Army Air Corps at the time. But um, at any rate, uh, those those war years were. Um, were very, uh, I don't know, they, they had a, quite an impression on me, even though, I mean, I was around eight years old or nine years old when the war ended, but I, I got a real serious impression about how deeply we were involved in that and what it required in the way of sacrifice on the part of people back here in the States, not only those who were serving in the Army and whatever, but, uh, but for all the civilian people, there was a huge amount of sacrifice going on and it was all done very voluntarily. I mean, I, I don't remember hearing anybody ever complain about the rationing or about any of the other uh, things that had that we had to do. I remember when I was in grade school, uh, we had about semi-annual uh, collections of newspapers and scrap metal. 
because, you know, again, for the war effort, they could use those things. They could turn scrap metal into tanks and, and other things. <laughs> so we, I, as a kid, I remember pulling a wagon around the, the neighborhood collecting scrap metal and then also newspapers. I'm not sure why or how they managed to use newspapers, but, but they got recycled somehow and, and were used. Um, so it was, it was quite a time in my life, and it left a great impression, especially because it was a much simpler life. Um, we didn't, things weren't uh, as easily gotten back then. In the, this was in the 40s. Uh, for example, our, our, all of our dairy products were delivered to our door. <laughs> that, there was a milk wagon, if you will, that came around once or twice a week, and delivered our milk and our butter and our cottage cheese and other dairy products and whatever. Uh, and we had a little case sitting outside the door, and they would come and drop the, the you know, the new milk jugs in there, and uh, they take the old ones away, the, the used ones, because they were all in glass bottles back then. Uh, and by the way. Milk was not homogenized. Oh, geez. I was going to ask if they, early. Did they, did they refrigerate it on the truck? Well, they had to. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it was, uh, the, in fact, the, uh, the milk and cream uh, would separate out in each bottle of, of uh, milk that we received. There was a layer of cream on the top, <laughs> which you could, if you wanted to, you could carefully pour it off and use cream for coffee or whatever, you know, making other goodies and things. Um, in fact, some people did that. You know, they very carefully poured off the cream off the top of the, uh, the milk jugs. Do you remember how you, uh, how you paid for it? Did you have, like, a subscription of some kind? or? Yeah, yeah I think, well, my dad, of course, took care of all that. <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah, I think, I think it was a thing where uh, every time they delivered, they would drop an invoice there. And then he would, I guess he would write out a check or something like that or next, next round. Um, there was a lot of, lot of trust going on <laughs> in those days. You know, the, people didn't worry about not getting paid, I don't think. You know, because there were a lot, of, um, a lot of other things that got delivered uh, by cart or truck or whatever, including ice. I remember the ice truck going up and down my street delivering ice to people. Now, you might ask, what do they use ice for? Well, they use it for ice boxes because mechanical refrigeration was just coming into being in the early 40s. Many people still used ice boxes, including my, one of my grandmothers. She, she never had a mechanical refrigerator. She had an ice box. What she used was a huge block of ice that you set in the top of the uh, of the ice box if you will it was an insulated box had a couple of doors on it and you put a big block of ice in the top and the in the cool air would would slowly settle you know settle down into the refrigerator compartment if you will the ice would melt of course <laughs> and giving off heat or, or absorbing heat if you will and um Mm-hmm. And that's how kind of like a cooler, basically. Well, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> it was a big cooler. Now, I, I have I have read in the past that even as late as 1940, only about half of people's houses had things like uh, plumbed hot water or flush toilets and various kinds of indoor plumbing. Did you did you grow up with indoor plumbing and, and all of those uh, hot water and all that? Yes, I, I did. And 
Yeah, no, yeah, there was no problem with that because I lived in the city. Uh, now, people who were on the outskirts of the city in the suburbs, they were the ones that had outhouses and whatever <laughs> and didn't have running water. They'd have a well or something they'd have to go to and, and pump the water up out of a well. But, um, no, and mo- most of the cities, uh, there were urban areas, I mean, you know, that were built up. And people were living close together, if you will. In other words, houses were built right next to each other and, uh, and a lot of apartments and whatever. In fact, we lived in an apartment. That's what I grew up in. Um, never never did live in a house <laughs> when I was a kid. Really? Wait, how, how old were you when you first moved into a house? Well, let's see. Probably uh, after I moved out of... I, in 1953, I went to the University of Dayton for... Um, for schooling, and um, I was still my my parents were still living in that apartment there in Cincinnati. Uh, when I, by the time I graduated, my dad had built a house out in the sub way out in the suburbs of Cincinnati. In fact, I had helped him build it um, during during my freshman year or, or the summer between my freshman and sophomore year. Um, I spent helping him build that house. But he was still living in an apartment at that time, and so I was, too. I was living on campus up at University of Dayton, so I guess you'd call that an apartment. It was a dormitory. (laughs) And uh, so the first real house that I actually lived in was in my senior year in college when I joined with eight other guys, and we we rented a house together. And that was the first house I ever lived in. (laughs) Now, I think in in, uh, Newport, we were living in a house, actually. I don't think that was an apartment. Getting back to, you know, you mentioned going to University of Dayton, and I believe you said you were 15 years yes. old when you when went I, there, right? Yeah, when I so signed up. Your, um, was your uh, mother living back at home by that point? Uh, no, or? She, no, she wasn't. So, so living at college, did you, did you even get to see your mother much after she did get back home? Well, I did. By, in fact, I got to see her pretty much for the first time when uh, when she moved out of the hospital i think that was in uh, probably 1954 or 5 i forget which um i think it might it might have been late 54 when my dad uh, got her out of the hospital but she was they were still living in that apartment in cincinnati for about a year or so until he finished that house um yeah, I think he finished the house in 1955 or so. So, I, but I was in college uh, during those years um, that they were living in the apartment. Now, I while I was in college, uh, I'd make it a point to hop on a bus and go down there and visit with them about at least once a month. Um, and so I got to that's how I got to know my mom was going down for visits <laughs> during my college years. And uh, and then, of course, subsequent years that w- after they moved into the house, by then I I well fi- in '57 I graduated, but I stayed in Dayton. Um, so I would, but I would still go down there and visit. And uh, that's those are the years that I got to know my mom was uh, probably from 1955 until until she died in 1965. It was ten years later she so, died. So you so you only. You only knew your mother from somewhere around 15, 16, 17 years old till you were maybe in your mid-20s? Yes. Yeah. What was it um, 
what was your relationship with your mother like? You know, not not even hardly knowing her for the first 15 years of your life. Well, I got to know her through, well, through my dad, of course. I mean, he used to tell me a lot about her. Uh, and he, he learned a lot about what was going on in her life through a lot of friends of hers at the hospital. He, he became close friends with num- a number of uh, my mother's friends. And so he got to learn a lot more about what was going on in her life day to day through them as well as through, uh, through my mom. Um, so and then he would pass on a lot of that to me. Now, I, the only way I got to know her really was through uh, some letters that she used to write to me when I was in college. I, I do remember that. And she used to occasionally send me a, a little care package, which uh, contained things like uh, uh, canned meats and cheese and crackers and things like that, things to eat. <laughs> she knew that I was, I was probably starving because I didn't have much money. <laughs> and I only had a five-day meal ticket there at University of Dayton campus. So I could eat five days on campus. But on the weekends, I was on my own <laughs> trying to scrounge for food. I got, got to meet a lot of good people in Dayton that way. A lot of my buddies that, uh, that lived in Dayton uh, invited me to dinner uh, at their houses <laughs> all through my junior and senior years. So, yeah, it was. But at any rate, I got to know my mom more through... Uh, through talking to my dad, I think, than anything else. I mean, I learned a lot about who she was and, and her, uh, her kind spirit, uh, her, her bravery and her courage. Uh, you know, and with all those years of not being able to see her own children and suffering a lot through many surgeries and various other treatments that she had to go through, uh, she lost uh, one one whole lung during that period of time. Oh wow! And part part of the other one. So when she finally got out of the hospital, she had part of one lung she was breathing on, and uh, so it, it was always a um, you know a, a real challenge for her. And so I, and I got to know more about that just in those few years uh, after she got out of the hospital. Even though it was you know times that I was just visiting with her. Because I'd, I'd spend the whole weekend, you know, down there and um, got a chance to shout with her a lot. And, and just found out about her gentle spirit and her generosity and her uh, desire to serve others. I mean, that seemed like that was there was always somebody else on her mind uh, rather than herself. Even though she was the one undergoing all the pain and suffering, uh, she was more concerned about her children and about uh, a lot of her friends and whatever. So she was a really kind-hearted woman. Um, so what was your relationship like with her after she returned from the hospital? Well, like I say, it was broken up by, uh, it was only through weekend visits, and that was maybe at most once a month, because as time went by, I, I got to visit less and less. You know, I had, my own life was ta- starting to take over after I graduated from from college. That was in 57. Um so, you know, I started living my own life more and started to, as I think most older people do, you start forgetting about your family, about your mom and dad. Now, you don't completely forget them, of course, but, um, but I, you know, they, they started to become somewhat more secondary because I had other relationships in Dayton that I was trying to foster and, and build and so forth. 
But like I say, I, I enjoyed always going down there to, uh, it was only 50 miles away or so, uh, about an hour or so in a car. So I, I did get to see her a fair amount, but not nearly as much as I probably should have, even after not missing her for 10 years or so. Right. So, but I know she went through a lot. <laughs> do you have, uh, did you, do you have, you know, sort of a picture of what, what her day to day was like in the hospital? Uh, no, I never really did find that out. I, I honestly didn't. I, I never inquired, and I don't think Dad ever uh, filled me in on that. I didn't know if her, her letters to your father or anything uh, might have you know talked about oh. it. Do you have any of those old letters or long gone? Or? No, I wish I did, but I, I do not have any of them. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think I ever got the letters that she wrote to, to my dad. Um, but she wrote me letters when I was in college. Um, it's funny, though. I, I don't remember receiving letters from her after I graduated. <laughs> I think we, our, our uh, letter communication kind of stopped at that point. But, uh, but I did see her from time to time, like I say, uh, by going to visit them. Um, I remember her. I, I do remember her coming up to our, our graduation party. Uh, like I say, that my senior year, I lived with eight other guys in a house, and uh, they, you know, they were a bunch of kind of crazy guys. Uh, we, for example, we had a we had, had a Christmas tree that year that uh, we we left up uh, long after Christmas, and finally decided to take it down because all the needles were getting dry and whatever and falling on the floor. We took it out in the backyard and we burned it, so it was just nothing but you know. <laughs> bunch of little sticks if you will but right but the base of the tree was still there and so somebody had the idea at easter time to resurrect that tree inside our house <laughs> and redecorate it <laughs> which we did wow <laughs> we brought it back in the house put it in the tree stand and put all the lights and ornaments back on it too funny and uh, and we left it standing there until our graduation in june <laughs> And all the all the parents of all the guys came to that house uh, for our little graduation get together, and uh, they were astonished that we would <laughs> that we do something so stupid <laughs> as resurrect our Christmas tree. But you know, and we had a bunch of other things hanging around the house that engineering symbols and things like that because there were several of us were engineers. We had was one one guy was a pre med. Um, couple of guys in business but i think the house was dominated by engineering people and what kind of engineering degree did you end up getting i went through mechanical okay that's what i thought yeah so at any rate um again you know kind of jumping back and forth a little bit sure. i'm i'm looking at my notes here about about things that i that i remember from my childhood uh and a couple of the things uh well i already mentioned that milk was not homogenized in those days also, uh, because butter during the war years, anyway, butter was hard to come by. Uh, we used lard a lot for cooking. And you, you could buy lard in cans at the store, but the way we generated lard mostly was through uh, cooking down bacon and various other high-fat meats. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we would save the drippings from those and put them in a can and throw them in the refrigerator 
and then reuse that lard for cooking. <laughs> right, right, which is very resourceful. Oh, man, and it was good, too. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I've made a few recipes where they have you cook some bacon and then cook something else in the bacon grease, and oh, it is delicious. Oh, yeah, man. There ain't nothing like it. <laughs> so, at any rate, we, that was one of, our, one of the things we did all the time when I was a kid up until, well, until I left, left home in 53. Uh, at any rate, the other thing that, that remains in my memory is the fact that we had an old coal furnace. It burned lump coal. And, uh, and in fact, all the apartment building had uh, two furnaces, one for, we were on the first floor and the people on the second floor had a separate furnace. And, uh, but once a year or so, my dad would have to buy coal from a local coal supplier and they would deliver it out in the, in the front of your house on the street they would dump it right there on the curb, just big a big pile of coal. Usually, we'd get about seven or eight tons of coal at a time. Tons. And my job when I was a kid. <laughs> You're telling me seven. You got you got fifteen thousand pounds of coal at a time. Yeah, that's about it. <laughs> how how much space does that take up? I mean, how big is that? Well, it's not a real big pile. Really, you know, coal's fairly dense. Okay. Um, I think of charcoal I'd briquettes; say, they they feel very very light, you know. Oh, oh the charcoal! Yeah, the charcoal briquettes are yeah they're already uh, they're burned twice, if you will. Gotcha. I mean, okay. <laughs> now the, the the coal is what's mined right out of the ground. So so how big's about a ton of coal? Well, uh, the, what I remember the piles that used to be dumped at our curbside, the pile would be about um, oh maybe four feet high. And then it would shape, be shaped sort of like a cone. Yeah. Um, and the cone would be probably, I'm guessing, 10, 12 feet or so in diameter. Maybe so so maybe the size that, of, maybe a, of a compact sedan or so. Yeah, okay. yeah. Right. That's a lot of coal. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and you got that delivered how often? Well, usually once, once a year okay. or maybe a little, depends, you know, if it was a really cold winter, Dad would have to get a little supplemental delivery. Another couple of tons or so, but uh, my job was to take all that coal by hand <laughs> and load it into our. We, there was a coal bin in our basement, and um, so we. I had to carry the coal. Our our house or our apartment was built with a retaining wall in the front. It was about oh I don't know about four feet high off of the sidewalk, so I would have to take each lump of coal and throw it up over the retaining wall into the front yard and and then go up the steps and pick up each lump and carry it over to the coal bin window oh my goodness. <laughs> which was in the front front side of the house <laughs> and toss it into the coal bin that'll keep you in shape <laughs> uh yeah it kept me dirty too i'll tell you what i mean <laughs> after a day of handling black coal you <laughs> it's it's hard to get yourself clean but you know the thing is as a kid you I just loved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It sounds uh, like it could be entertaining. Yeah, there was nothing better than getting yourself really dirty with coal. <laughs> so, but that was my job, and it would take. Sometimes it would take a couple of days for me to do it all, because um, you know it's it was essentially one piece at a time, one lump at a time, and they were you know pretty good sized lumps. Um, I don't know, maybe give or take uh, ten, twelve inches across you know maybe a, a cube around 10 or 12 inches 
So you could you could lift it, uh, but they were pretty heavy. I don't remember how much they weighed because I never weighed one. But <laughs> anyway, you get the idea. Yeah. Huh. Um, Did it make the house smell like cold to heat it that way? Well, I don't remember the house smelling like that. Now there was there was you know the smoke that the coal gave off uh, had a particular odor to it, and uh, mm-hmm. and so the the house would get some kind of an odor to it, I guess. But it was something you just got used to. It was sort of like walking into a <laughs> walking into a an outhouse. You know, I mean, if you sit in there long enough, you get used to the smell. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and but I also remember uh, as a kid, our our apartment used to, the the walls of the apartment. We had wallpaper on them for the most part, and um, about once a year or so, we'd have to get wallpaper cleaner, which was this the stuff that they use for. Um, oh, they they they've made children's. Uh, Oh, it's a Play-Doh, Play-Doh, you know? Oh, yeah, you know what Play-Doh really? is, right? Yeah, yeah. Play-Doh has a kind of a smell to it. Well, the stuff that we used to clean wallpaper with was was Play-Doh. They didn't call it huh. Play-Doh. They called it wallpaper cleaner. But that's precisely the same stuff that somebody started creating Play-Doh out of. Because <laughs> you could, you know, you could roll it up and, and make patties out of it or do whatever you want with it. But you also could wipe it, wipe down a wall that had coal dust or coal soot if you will embedded in it and it would clean it up you know little by little you'd have to keep stroking the the wall until you got it clean but um yeah so it burning coal uh did make a mess yeah yeah i bet (laughs) but it's probably all there was at the time right that was it yeah now there were some people who had uh, natural gas was beginning to you know get introduced in cincinnati back in the 40s but okay um, and so some people had natural gas furnaces, but the, everybody I knew had coal <laughs> up and down my street anyway. But, uh, so at any rate, uh, <clears throat> some of the things I, I, that were important to me as a kid, uh, was playing football and baseball. Uh, for ah. some reason, basketball escaped us, all, me and all of my friends. I think we played basketball once or twice in our lives, but there were no basketball courts nearby. I, I do remember us one time busting out the bottom of a bushel basket and hanging it on a concrete wall somewhere down in an alley near our house, and we would throw basketballs through that. <laughs> of course, we didn't know anything about the game. but <laughs> Right. Baseball and football are probably a little easier logistically because, you know. I oh, mean, yeah. yeah. Yeah, compared to basketball. <clears throat> yeah, you don't need. Well, you do need some equipment. You need a football sure. and you need sure. a baseball and bats and gloves and so forth. You can be but less particular event. about the playing surface, though, right? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you can could, you could make do. Yeah. Um, and we did. For, for football, for example, we, there was a small park uh, one block away up the street from where I live. Uh, we called it, it was Triangle Park, actually. It was shaped like a triangle, which didn't make for a very good playing field but <laughs> for, for football. But, but we just, we marked off boundaries, and that's where we, all the kids in the neighborhood played football. Every uh, every uh, fall and winter, that was our football field. And we played a lot of football games because there were a bunch of kids in my neighborhood. I I don't remember exactly how many, but I'd say at least 20, 25 kids that I can remember within a three-block radius of my house. There was a whole lot of boys there. 
And a lot of them went to the school that I went to. But at um, any rate, so we played a lot of football. And in baseball, there was, happened to be a baseball field at the grade school that I had attended. I went to Holy Name Grade School. And that was only about three or four blocks from my house. And so the same, same kids in the summer <laughs> would gather for pickup baseball games. And when we didn't have enough for an actual game, you know, we just hit flies and grounders to one another and, and play other games like, you know, you, you get 100 points for every fly you catch. And as soon as you get 300, you get the bat. <laughs> so, something like that, you know. <laughs> And uh, so that was a lot of a lot of fun. I, I remember many many hours playing football and baseball in my uh, in my neighborhood, and also my school. Like I said, uh, was pretty close by, so I had I got to walk to school every day uphill both and, ways. And it was uphill both ways. <laughs> <laughs> now that <laughs> it's really strange, but it was actually true. <laughs> now, how can that be true? Because it, it, it was it was it uh you had to go up and down a hill exactly gotcha <laughs> yeah i had to go one block up on on the street that i lived on i was on a hill pretty steep hill and i'd walk up to the top of the street and there was there was a flat area of a couple of a couple of streets i'd walk over the top of that and over to auburn avenue which is where my school was and then i had to walk down the hill <laughs> to the school <laughs> <laughs> so when it coming back home, I'd repeat the thing. I'd go uphill for a block or so, and then level, and then back down a hill. So it was really uphill both ways. <laughs> How about that? Although the, the snow wasn't really a knee, ankle deep or knee deep, rather every uh, sure. every winter. <laughs> it was close to that, but so. And I think I already mentioned uh, one of the features of our, our school always supported the uh, the war effort. Uh, so they always sponsored these scrap drives and uh, newspaper drives that, uh, that, in fact, they'd allow some of the kids off school for maybe an hour or so to actually go out and collect that stuff. So there was, you know, was, I, th I think it was one of the ways in which I remember everybody being involved in the war effort. Uh, another way I remember was uh, the Gold Star Mothers. I don't know if you heard about that or not, but... In my neighborhood, as all neighborhoods in this in the United States, uh, when when a mother lost a son or a husband in the war, uh, the government would would issue a uh, a gold star for her to hang in her window, and so that you know people people walking by would see the gold star and knew that uh, that somebody from that family had served in the war and had died in that war. And uh, we had we had quite a few uh, gold stars. Pardon me, Tom, I'm having a hard <laughs> hey, time with this. You one. know what? That's okay. That's what this is about. <laughs> but yeah, I mean it's Take your time. it's something to walk up and down the street and see that. Especially when you're a kid. Yeah, and and, and you knew you know those families, I assume. Yeah, a lot some of them. them. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Not all, but you know a lot of them, yep. So another thing I remember about my childhood was in Cincinnati, we had our public transportation was by way of what was called streetcars. I don't know if you've ever even heard of those, but they uh, were... They, they have they, them in uh, San Francisco still, right? They what? They, they still have those in parts of San Francisco, they, right? They do. They, okay, yeah. <laughs> they do. But but out there, they're, uh, they're run by a, a different means. They have a 
a, a cable that pulls them up and oh, down. Oh, that's the right. Hills. It's a cable car. Okay, they call yeah. them cable cars. Yeah. yeah. But they run on tracks. And that's what Cincinnati, as well as many other big cities, had uh, looked like railroad tracks essentially running down all the main streets. Two sets of them, one, you know, going one direction and the other in the other direction. And uh, there were intersections, various places where, you know, the cars would have to turn and, and go on a different route and whatever. But they were powered by electric motors, which were powered by an overhead trolley. You know, there, was, right, there, were, right. there were wires overhead <laughs> that had that carry high voltage. <laughs> and uh, each, each one of the streetcars had a big, big... Uh, pole, if you will, sticking up, attached to that, that trolley wire. It wasn't attached. It, it had a roller on it. But uh, electricity would come down through that, uh, that pole, if you will, down to the electric motor, and that's what the, would power the, the uh, streetcar. So huh. if we had, I remember riding streetcars a lot when I was a youngster. Um, and somewhere in the late 40s, uh, they started getting. They started transitioning in trolley buses, they, which ran on the same trolley wires, but they were rubber-tired buses <laughs> instead uh, of streetcars. Okay. Right. <laughs> so so, they, so they just on wheels instead of the, rails. They could pull over to the curb to pick up passengers, for example. Streetcars couldn't do that. They had to, you had to walk out from the curb across <laughs> uh, out to the middle of the street to get on a streetcar. Whereas with the uh, with the um, uh, streetcars, when you were a streetcar passenger and you wanted to get on one, you're standing on the curb and there are cars, automobiles, you know, driving up and down between you and the streetcar. <laughs> right, so right. You had to be kind of careful when you went to hop onto a streetcar. Right. You had to look out for the traffic coming because <laughs> they didn't always stop. But Okay, let's see what else here. There was a public screen. Okay. Uh, oh, I was, I was just going to also just reiterate a little bit about the jobs that I had when I was a kid. <laughs> and then we'll stop there. Delivering newspapers, as many kids did in those days. Um, now, we didn't have, we had usually an adult that was in charge of, you know, the whole uh, district or area. And, uh, and they would hand out the papers to be delivered. And they would do all the collecting. I didn't have to collect. I mean, I was only, I don't know, eight or nine or ten years old or something like that. So they, they didn't make me collect. But for that, I was paid. I, I delivered six days a week, and I was paid one dollar a week. <laughs> wow! And what year Which, was that? Well, this was probably uh, 1948, 47, 48, 40, somewhere around in there. And you said it was a dollar per a dollar a week. Okay. Let's see. I'm I'm curious here. I'm going to plug this into an inflation calculator. So that was about, so in today's dollars, that's about 10, 10 or $11 a week. Yeah, that's not too right. bad for a young man. <laughs> well, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. It was before that I hadn't made anything. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I used to get money from my dad when I needed it, but, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it would buy candy bars and stuff, you know, I mean, you had nickel candy bars and five cents for a bottle of pop, you know, I mean, there were a lot of things that were pretty cheap. <laughs> so, but then in high school, I really jumped up. I worked at a, uh, actually an apothecary, which is nowadays just called pharmacies, <laughs> a drugstore. And I, I used to, 
I used to mix up the, uh, I, I used to call it mixing up the potions that they, <laughs> that they gave out all the, uh, the salves and the creams. And then I'd fill all the capsules with powder, you know, for, for pills and whatever. Um, and I, I made 75 cents an hour doing that <laughs> in high school. Didn't work too many hours a week because I did, just didn't have the time to do it. But I also, I uh, remember during the high school years, uh, setting pins at, at bowling alleys. Now, you're probably not familiar with that either. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, they didn't used to have a machine to do it, right? That's right. <laughs> used to be guys standing back there, and you would work two alleys side by side, and uh, two, two lanes, bowling lanes. And uh, for that, we would, we would get 10 cents per game. And now, for the the deal was if you worked like I did for a certain bowling alley, they would allow you to, to set for a league, a men's league in the evening. Uh, there'd be ten ten people playing. You know, there are five guys on a team, mm-hmm. and, and they would bowl three games each. So that's a total of thirty games. So we'd make we'd make three bucks for that. Yeah, right. <laughs> and that was. That would take about two and a half hours. <laughs> oh, well, hey, that's that's not too bad. <laughs> no, it was pretty good. And then once in a while, you know, some of the guys were generous and they would they would throw a tip down the alley, you know, roll roll some coins down at you uh, after the after the games were over with. But um but seventy five or I'm sorry, uh, ten cents a game was not too bad and uh, it was hard work though. I remember that. You had to really keep at it because, you know, you, you had to Make sure you weren't standing in the pit back there when somebody was bowling. Yeah, you don't want to get hit. <laughs> yeah. So you had to keep jumping back and forth between the lanes uh, because they had to alternate rolling the ball anyway. You know, they, they couldn't roll them. They, I mean, just uh, protocol said you don't do it at the same time. Did you have to roll the ball back to them or was that automated? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was a, uh, there was a track you had to put it on. And it had a little bit of an incline there, so it would get the, the ball rolling. And in, in the meantime, when you know, once you got all the pins set up and whatever, uh, there, was, there was a rail or a uh, uh, kind of a platform behind us where we could jump up there and sit on it and get your legs out of the way. So, that, you know, when they, when they threw a ball down there and the pins started flying, <laughs> you didn't get hurt. But those pins, I'll tell you what, I mean, all the, the couple of years that I have did them, those pins would fly everywhere. I mean, I had, I had pins coming up out of that pit, bouncing off the wall behind me. Oof. <laughs> and, you know. You need to wear I a had, helmet. Yeah, I had plenty of them because uh, I used to stretch my legs out and, and rest my feet on the, uh, the pin rack. And, uh, and the, some of those pins would come up and hit you on the, on the underside of the leg, on the bottom of the thighs. You know, oh, man, I'll tell you what, <laughs> you get a lot of bruises. <laughs> So at any rate, it was a, it was a good, good job, good job. Um, and just to give you an idea, one of, the, one of the things that we used our money for uh, in the neighborhood that I lived in, there was a movie theater about two blocks away from where I lived. So it was walking distance, and they charged all of 25 cents to get in. <laughs> and in those days, a lot of times they were showing double features. <laughs> you know, they... So you got to see two movies for a quarter. <laughs> Not <laughs> too shabby if you're good. making a buck an hour. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> at any rate, um, th- that was some of my entertainment and, and fun things. 
And I think uh, with that, I think I'd just soon skip, uh, cut it off now, and then we'll uh, pick it up talking about uh, parents and all that. And just, uh, yeah, let me know next time you, you want to, or you're available to do it, and I'll make myself available. <laughs> okay, Tommy, take care then. God right. bless. Have a good evening. Yep, love you. All right, love you too. All right, bye. All right, bye-bye. I see you're still recording this, though. Yeah, well, you know, it's all I. I can cut all this out in the editing. Okay, okay. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, you probably gonna, don't I'm want gonna, the chatter. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll be. Uh, I'll be doing some light editing here for the uh, for the audience. So. Yeah. Right.